The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. My husband is Steve Siegel, and he's the producer of the podcast. Today's episode is episode number 271. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a good review so that Google will find us when people search. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel, give us a thumbs up on our videos, and ring the bell so that you're always notified when we have a new video. Today we have an interview with a gentleman named Jay Lind. After traveling the world, he came home to become an English teacher. He married a wonderful woman and they started a family. But when his father was diagnosed with full with terminal brain cancer, his occasional drug use exploded into full-blown cocaine addiction, culminating in terrible choices that threatened everyone he loved. As an addict in recovery, Jay found the strength to bounce back from his collision with rock bottom. He continues to make progress to today and he is an author. Let's talk to Jay Lind. Jay Lind, thank you so much for being willing to be on the podcast today and sharing your story. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So take us back to the beginning. Where did you grow up? How did you, you know, what was your life like when you were a kid and how did you get introduced to drugs? Sure. Uh, well, for me, in some ways, this is the part that separates me from other uh, addicts and alcoholics. Um, and it's an important part, I think, of, of my story to share is that there isn't some childhood trauma. There isn't, um, I don't have this long list of resentments in my life. I lived a very privileged life. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, um, two loving parents, brother and sister, great family. I was good at school. I loved sports. I had lots of friends, um, everything. Uh, it's like you couldn't, I couldn't have been luckier. I, you know, I won the lottery by where I was born and who I was born to, um, no doubt. And, um, you know, leading into high school, I had thought, you know, I was part of this group, like we are popular kids. We were like, but we're going to go to high school and we're not going to drink. Uh, everyone told us that's what happens when you get to high school. But but my best friend and I remember like making a pact, like we're not going to drink. We're going to be the cool kids who don't drink. Um, and about two weeks into high school, I got drunk before a dance. Uh, it didn't last like a, pretty much my first opportunity. Um, I uh, blew it and uh, I loved it. Um, I had so much fun. Uh, there weren't any negative consequences. And I remember thinking like, oh, man, that just made like hanging out with friends, even more fun. Um, and I didn't, I remember my friend who I drank with the same friend who I made the packs not to drink with, uh, he got sick and he was like, I'm never doing it again. Of course he did, but not as much as I did, or he didn't love it uh, the way I did. So through high school though, I drank, um, you know, I, I was surrounded myself with other people who liked to drink and party and, uh, you know, have fun. And we were definitely, I would say, you know, um, you know, binge drinkers, weekend drinkers. Uh, when we drank, we drank a lot, but it didn't get in the way of, you know, big things in our life and school and family and, and, um, you know, sports and all that. I did well in school. Um, I went, ended up going to getting into a, a good uh, college, went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison, uh, which is a known uh, party school, often like right at the top of the list. 
Uh, I'm sure that had something to do with why I chose to go there. Uh, I... Okay, Jay, I'm just going to interrupt for a second because sure. you just made me think of something. Can you actually Google which are the best party colleges? Oh, yeah, there's can, they, make can't you? they make a list every year, and, and we're very proud of it up there in Madison to be on the top of that <sighs> list. Okay. Uh, um, so, yeah, so I went there in part because of that, I'm sure, but also what a great school and a, and a great, uh, great city in Madison. Anyway, so again, so I drank there um, like, a, you know, party or binge drinker, over drinker, but I still went to school, did my work. I did OK. Eventually uh, kind of found my calling there, which is to be a, an English teacher, I decided. And at that point, school was great, but I would work hard, play hard. Uh, but definitely harder than the other people I'm seeing now. <laughs> um, and I didn't do any other drugs, nothing. I mean, I didn't smoke weed. I didn't do any other drugs. I never came in contact really with with other drugs besides, you know, I, I knew, you know, a lot of people who smoke marijuana, but it wasn't my thing. I was like a partier. Marijuana makes you want to sleep or made me, makes me want to sleep and eat a pizza and watch a movie. Uh, and that's not much fun for everybody else. Um but on my last day of college, after you know I finished, before I was uh, packing up and moving out, um, a situation came up where I actually saw cocaine for the first time, like came across it at a party, and I'd never even seen it. And I tried it, and I loved it. Um, wow. I couldn't stop talking about it for months and months. Uh, but I moved out of town the next morning. And what year was that, Jay? That Just is curious. 1996. 1996. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you know, one of the, I wanted to add in just kind of an editorial comment, sure. you know, even though you say, you know, you didn't have childhood trauma, I, I get that, but I think that makes your story even more important because there are so many young people out there who begins experimenting with drugs who really don't have childhood trauma. And I think it's very, very hard for parents who go, why? Why did my son do this? You know, what was wrong that my son did that? You know, and you just did it because, hey, you thought it'd be fun, you yeah. know, and I think that that happens a lot. And I, you know, I want people listening to maybe, you know, keep that aspect in mind so parents aren't going, oh, it's my fault. I did something wrong. Mm -hmm. I was too mean or, you know, not necessarily. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, here's the thing. I think that, um, you know, it's, this is my theory and other people's theory, and I'm not the only one to think of this, but that I have addiction in there. It's like bubbling under the surface. I was born with some kind of thing. And most people who did what I did weren't going to turn into me and, and go off the rails at some point because they don't have that whatever it is, whether it's a genetic link or who knows what. But it, obviously addiction is in families. We, we know that. Um, and it's around in mine too. It was in there and something had to set it off. So it was like I was born with a loaded gun, but it wasn't going to shoot if nothing set it off. So up to that point where I am in my story, nothing had set that, you know, set it off. And, um, you know, I, I knew when I tried cocaine that time, how much I loved it. And I kept talking about it and talking about it, but then I went, moved to Chicago and then traveled around the world for a year with my, with some friends and uh, drank and drank, but stayed out of trouble, made it home. Uh, and then uh, went to grad school and became a teacher the whole time. So yeah. wait a minute. So that whole time you traveled all around the world, you never did cocaine. No, never, never, wow. never. Okay. I, I mean, again, we didn't really see it. It wasn't like often. I'm sure if it was in front of me, I would have, I would have done it. Uh, I, and I was too scared yeah, yeah. to look for it. I thought, you know, if you do cocaine, you know, you you have to deal with some like cartel and you're going to, you know, <laughs> I didn't know anything uh, about anything. Um, 
And then, uh, you know, came back and went to grad school and became a teacher in Chicago. And same thing, I would occasionally overdo it, right? So I was getting a little more mature and drinking less or, or having those bad, uh, I used to say I overdid it. I, used, I, had too much, I would have less of those overdid it nights. Um, and I met an, another teacher and we got married. Um, and like teachers often marry other teachers. Uh, and we, have, uh, we had two sons. Everything's going great. I end up teaching back at my old high school, like nationally renowned high school. It's great. She gets a job there too. And, 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 and then we moved to our old town with these, and we have these two sons. Everything's going great. Everything's under control. You're like the Brady Brunch. Yeah, it is. It really is. It's, it's like, <laughs> that's why I think the story is important because that I still was in danger and there weren't really a bunch of other signs. I wasn't sad. I wasn't hiding from my feelings. I wasn't pretending to be happy but I wasn't happy. I was really happy. I, I love my job more than anything else in the world. Um, and my kids were doing great. And I mean, everything like I couldn't have planned it out better. And then my dad got sick. Uh, and this is about 2013 or so. My dad got sick and uh, he just had it, you know, had it like an incident, went to the hospital. Turns out he has a brain tumor and uh, the doctor's say um pretty clearly like you know he's gonna die in about a year it's gonna he's gonna have to have surgery radiation and then he's gonna like slowly you know die but a year would be great um and i had never experienced any bump in the road until that point no adversity in my life and my dad really is, was my hero um much like or I end up much like him being a flawed, but really genuine person. And my dad had a lot of the similar issues that I have, I think, and right about 40 years old, which is how old I was when, uh, when he got sick, um, he kind of figured it out and started getting better. My mom was very happy about that. Uh, mm-hmm. And so he was a drinker. He was a like- drinker. Okay. Yep. Um, I don't know if he's an alcoholic. I, I doubt it. Uh, anyway, it's some level mm-hmm. of this on the spectrum, I'm sure. But okay. he was, you know, he had issues with boundaries and, and risk related behavior, sort of impulsive person, you know, and it, and uh, maybe wasn't thinking about consequences and other people or his family as much as he should. Um, mm. But at about 40, he started owning it and getting better. And by the time he died, he was like the best person I've ever met. And my mom and my dad were like, uh, you know, in, in, in love and happy and living this great life because my some switch flipped. So anyway, when my dad, and, and so I loved him and recognized that very much. And when he got sick and died, I was unprepared for it uh, to deal with that because of how smooth my life had been. Um, well, how long did he live after he was diagnosed? One year, almost exactly one a year. year. Yeah. Okay. And so in a tough year uh, of dealing with the surgery and the radiation, and then, you know, the last bit, uh, last few weeks dealing with him dying, uh, you know, it's rough. Um, it is. And there's a saying about smooth seas, not making strong sailors. Uh, I, my life had been very smooth and I wasn't very good at sailing. And so when the, the, mm-hmm. I hit the choppy water there, um, I flew off the rails. There's two, there's a mixed metaphor there, but uh, I flew yeah. off the rails. So I, about that time, like I had occasionally up to then come around Coke and done a little cocaine, like, but only a little bit here and there. And then I sought it out uh, as an escape uh, and it temporarily worked. And then uh, very quickly, you know, snowballed out of control. 
And I was in full-blown addiction as my dad was dying. Um, I was teaching high school English and, and, and managing uh, to, to keep uh, my head above water in my marriage and raising my kids and hiding it from everyone. So your wife didn't know? She had no, did she? no idea. She had no oh. idea at all. You were good, Jay. Yeah, well, as you, you know, you've been doing this podcast for a long time. I'm sure I'm not the first addict to tell you uh, we're good at our jobs there. You know, the only way to keep it going is to fool people. And that's right. We had to fool. I had to fool everybody, the people closest to me. Um, and I managed to like still go to work and do my job. But underneath there, I was so miserable um, where I was doing cocaine before work, at work, after work, at home when my family was asleep. Um you know, what about money? Yes. Doesn't that doesn't that do quite a drain on your finances? And yeah. your wife didn't notice. Yes, uh, Robin Williams said that cocaine is God's way of telling you you have too much money. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast, or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at. The Addiction Podcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727 314 7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five star review. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. Uh, yeah, so I, I, uh, yeah, so I had to hide where I was getting money, what I was using money for. I was taking all these payday loans and borrowing money and owing money to a, a drug dealer. And, um, so there's a lot of covering my tracks too. So I was in uh, way over my head, um, you know, after my dad died, it just went, you know, completely crazy. And I was barely holding on. Um, eventually, and this sort of gets to my point of no return, I guess. Uh, I um, I got myself in some legal issues and financial issues that uh, like often this is what, where it goes and trouble at work. And uh, can you say what legal issue? Um, yeah, I guess I'd rather not go into all the, de- the details of it, but it's it, okay. it ended up with a felony conviction and probation. Okay. Um, so I didn't have to go to jail or pr- I didn't have to go to prison or anything like that. Um, okay. But that was the point of no return, obviously, where the secret's out. So now I had to tell. I had to tell everybody what's going on. Um, it's because- yeah, because out of the blue, you just don't get arrested. No, for something no. Weird. And, you yeah. know, there, there's, yeah, okay. And so I, it needed to, uh, you know, I had to sit down. So basically in the back of my mind, uh, or not too far in the back of my mind, but in my mind, I knew that I was an addict, a hundred percent. I knew I had to go to rehab. I knew which rehab I wanted to go to. Um, some of the people in my family had been there. I know all about it. 
Uh, I know how great it is. I was just waiting for it to a situation that forced me there because I couldn't, you know, just pull the trigger and ask for help, which would have been seems so easy, but definitely is not easy. Hardest thing. Yeah. Hardest thing is to ask for help, I think. Yep. So that day I just like one day I just opened the floodgates and let it all out to my to my wife and uh, my mom and my brother. And, uh, you know, they helped me, you know, get out of there and get get to rehab. Um did you ever do anything besides cocaine or was it just cocaine? No, cocaine and drinking. Yeah, okay. that's it. Okay. That's it. Uh, I had no real interest in any, any other drugs. Um, and I went to inpatient rehab and then there's a, you know, that's over six years ago. And so from that point, you know, it's six years I've been in recovery now with some bumps in the road. Uh, I like to consider it all in recovery. Um, I think it's counterproductive to say when there's a, a slip or a relapse that, you know, now you're starting over because it's all part of that same process. I stayed in recovery during those slips. The last one was quite a while ago now, but uh, I considered my recovery beginning that, you know, when I went to um, rehab in Minnesota. And since then, you know, there's at the beginning, especially it was very, very hard early recovery because when I got back from rehab, all of my problems were still there and now I'm losing my job and um going and you don't have the cocaine to help you i don't have the cocaine i could get it or the alcohol but yeah but I'm, yeah but, uh in the in it so now you're forced to face life on life's terms um and, so, and my life so, was pretty so crappy i'm sorry yeah. i'm sorry for interrupting again mm-hmm. so how long have you been clean and sober now yeah so like i said so six plus years of recovery it's been you know i'll say years since any use but there was a couple of bumps in the road early on well, you know, I, I just have to say he's very well done. And I said that to a lot of people that come on the podcast because and I'm not a former addict. So mm-hmm. I know I have not been there and personally experienced it. But I know from all of the people that we've talked to, it is not easy. No. And you, you, yeah, it's just very well done for doing that. Thank you. Okay. So you lost your job. Yep. And then eventually my marriage, uh, we, you know, okay. we did counseling and uh, tried work time for a long time to eventually decide that. We should part ways, but we today still um, get along great. She's an amazing person and a great friend, and we do a great job co-parenting our kids. We're partners with that, which obviously wouldn't be possible if I was still using or had an active addiction. Um, There's no way I could have managed that, and I probably would have lost the custody of my kids on on top of that. Um, So I'm so grateful to her uh, for that. but I had a lot. So then I had to, you know, I was then faced with, okay, you lost that and that these are more excuses to use. And I feel tons of shame and guilt over all of it, which is my biggest, uh, always my biggest issue. So I had to figure out how to d- deal with that and uh, not, you know, go in another downward spiral like I did before. And I owe that to the uh, couple stints in rehab or, you know, inpatient. And then when I came back outpatient rehab as well, and then meetings, um, and building those connections in the community and, and recovery, people, uh, you know, a support system to help hold you accountable. So, the, so it's the support system that really helps you stay clean and sober. And that makes sense because you have to have, you have to have something you can fall back on or somebody you can fall back on, yeah. you know, that will steer you in the right direction. And Obviously, it's not necessarily the people that you were friends with before right. who were helping you get the cocaine. Right. But um, I got it. So you have you have like a support network that you. Yeah. Can... And I think I always had a great support network because like like I said earlier, my 
I had a different life. My using life was like a second life. And I have a group of unbelievable friends who knew nothing and family who knew nothing. Um, and an, a, a, the best therapist in, in the entire world has helped me mm-hmm. through, through all of this. And I just wasn't being honest with them and using them appropriately. And also they're not addicts and alcoholics. And it's hard for them to really help me anyway. So in my situation, once I got sober, I needed to find uh, every, a, a community in the recovery uh, area so that I knew, you know, I could have other people who, you know, understand. Hey, They've yeah, been there. It. Yeah. And that's that. no, it's not anyone's fault for not getting it uh, yep. because usually we don't get it in, unless we have to, you know? Yep. Yep. So you wrote a book. Yes. Yeah, so there... Did you write it? Tell us about the book. Yeah, what so led you to that? I started writing it about five years ago. So about a year into my recovery, I was in a meeting uh, in one of my outpatient uh, recovery stints. And the idea kind of came to me because I've been writing. I was an English teacher and a writer, um, but I'd never written a book before. But I was using writing as part of my recovery, a lot of journal writing. And, and it was very helpful to me. And then I started realizing some of what I was writing in my journals was pretty nice I liked it like I was telling I was writing about the stories I was hearing um and how and what I was learning from them um so the idea just came to me what if I wrote a book like a memoir that consisted of these other stories of the people that I'm meeting along the way um in in recovery in rehab and and AA meetings and stuff like that but also um you know my therapist and my sons and my ex-wife and my mom and my brother and I, we get to I, I start telling their stories and you learn my story between the lines of theirs and also learning something from each of these stories and helping to destigmatize addiction and alcoholism and you know because so many people have the wrong idea about what it is that it's just a bunch of weak-minded you know people with no why power. can't you just yeah. stop and wait a minute why you just you love your kids so much what doesn't that make you stop or, you know, you, you had this bad consequence. Well, wouldn't that make you stop? No, it makes it harder because now I feel bad. And I'm just not like you. You know, that's the thing is you have to remind people like, yeah, that, that makes regular people stop, but not people with this illness. And we don't have an off switch. I need someone to help me turn it off uh, once I turn it on. I do have the ability to decide when to turn it back on. So that's my goal in day-to-day life is don't flip it back on because once it's on, you know, then I got to go back and have someone help me turn it off. And who knows when that will be. Yep. So what's the name of your book and where do people get it? Yeah, the name of the book is Between the Lines, a memoir about addiction, empathy, and evolution. And uh, they can get our- Do you have a copy right there? I you do have a copy right here. Yeah. I knew you had it. Of course I do. I have them all over the place. Uh, and I'll pop a picture up on the video as yeah. well. But there, but thank you. Yes, uh, okay. Yes, and I'm also doing a podcast of the same name called Between the Lines, the podcast where, similar to yours, I'm- uh, interviewing someone each week and um, talking about their experience. Some of them are addicts and alcoholics, some aren't, uh, but it's a very, it's a positive platform. I want to give people hope. Um, I thought I, I couldn't do it uh, until I had a little sliver of hope. And that made me, I held on to that little bit of hope uh, in order to get back. Now I'm happy and healthy, you know, and productive again. And that is unbelievable to me. I was just, I was done. I thought I was done and my life was over and I was never going to never going to be back. And, you know, six years later, after that point of no return, um, I'm, I'm sitting here like happy as can be. So I want to give that help give that to other people, too. I love that. I mean, that's what we do. Yeah. And I love that. I'm lo- I love that you want to give back your books on Amazon. Yes. 
and, uh, and the uh, podcast is on Spotify and uh, uh, Apple. Podcast. And it's between the lines. Between the lines, the podcast, and then the, yep. the book is a memoir. Yeah. Perfect. Jay, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you, Joni. If you had just one message to give to people listening, what would that message be? That recovery is possible. Um, for That's for addicts and people who know them. Uh, addicts in early recovery don't feel it's possible. And lots of loved ones of addicts think, oh, my God, they're never going to get better. Rightly so, they feel that way. But it's possible. And listen to these stories of, of the people in recovery and, the, and, and their stories of uh, experience, strength, and hope. I think that's awesome. Thank you so much, Jay, for talking to us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our interview today. Um, I think Jay's story is particularly impactful because, as he said when he started, he didn't have childhood trauma. He didn't live with family, parents addicted. He had a great childhood and every opportunity, but he just wanted to party and party he did. And then the loss of his father kind of sent him down the road of cocaine addiction, which is unfortunate, but he's clean and sober. He's happy. He's giving back. He's become a podcaster, which we're excited about. And he's written a book called Between the Lines, a memoir about addiction, empathy, and evolution. And it is on Amazon. If you just do Between the Lines and Jay Lind, L-I-N-D, you can find it. And you can also find the podcast on Spotify. So everybody have a good week. If you need help, if you are addicted, please reach out and get that help. If you have a loved one who's addicted, now is the time to get them into treatment. You know, if you listen to this podcast all the way through in the middle, we have an ad from a friend of ours, Bobby Newman. Bobby is an exceptional interventionist with an extremely high success rate. So if you're not comfortable getting your loved one into addiction, reach out to Bobby Newman. His information is in the middle of the podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again next week. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.